Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by Simon Fishburn, editor in chief, Steve Osden, Washington editor, Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence, and Paul Bonanos, director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, as ASCO kicks off in Chicago, the CEOs of Genentech and Novartis say the Inflation Reduction Act is causing their companies to delay launches for some smaller indications. We'll also have some data highlights from the meeting for you, ADCs, CAR-Ts, bispecifics, and more, plus Vertex founder Joshua Boger has resurfaced as the chair of a tiny biotech that he says could have the most perfect drug ever discovered. But first, looking for a powerful new partner to accelerate breakthrough cancer research? At Cancer Research Horizons, their business is breakthroughs. Cancer Research Horizons is the innovation arm of Cancer Research UK, one of the world's largest private funders of cancer research. With access to $400 million of world-class research and the expertise of 4,000 researchers and clinicians, Cancer Research Horizons has formed over 60 startups and helped bring 11 drugs to market. Cancer Research Horizons is looking to partner with pharmas, biotechs, and investors. Find out more at cancerresearchhorizons.com slash collaborate dash U.S. Speaking at a press conference at the American Society of Clinical Oncology Conference in Chicago on Friday, Vas Narasimhan, CEO of Novartis, and Alexander Hardy, CEO of Genentech, have said the IRA is compelling their companies to forego fast-to-market development strategies in favor of getting onto the market first with the largest indications. Steve, is this surprising to you? You've been following the IRA for months now. Yeah, I, I think it's surprising that they said it, or kind of shocking, actually, that they said it in such a straightforward way. Alexander Hardy, the CEO of Genentech said that they have a small molecule drug that they're developing. It has the potential to treat ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer. He said normally they would take what he called a faster patient or faster market approach, which would lead to seeking approval first for ovarian cancer. But he said they're not going to do that, or they're they're likely not going to do that. He didn't say it for sure they're likely to go for the prostate cancer indication first because it's a much larger market. And as soon as the drug is uh, is launched, the nine-year time frame for the IRA for price setting to kick in is going to start. That means that they're not going to launch in um, ovarian cancer, which he says that they could have done three years earlier. And he didn't say whether, in fact, they will even um, launch it for ovarian cancer. Vosnar Simmons said something similar. He said that Novartis is developing a small molecule drug that could be effective for mesothelioma. And instead, um, they're only going to develop it, or they're likely only going to develop it for lung cancer, which is a much larger indication. Maybe they'll develop it for the smaller indication later, but 
those patients will have to wait. Um, he said that it's a disservice for those patients. What Voss said is, he said, we shouldn't have a systematic government policy that's going to hurt cancer patients. But at the same time, given our fiduciary responsibilities, these are the trade-offs we're being faced with. Alexander Hardy said that it's a terrible dilemma that the company is facing, but he also suggested that that he feels that they don't have any choice but to wait for, for data for the larger indication. So, Steve, I think it's important the way that VAS kind of framed this in terms of the fiduciary responsibility, because, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you is, who do you think is the audience? I mean, when Novartis, the CEO, and Genentech CEO stand up and say this, I mean, they're pretty much preaching to the converted, but they're making these public statements. I'm sure that there are politicians who will listen and say, sure, you can do it, just make less money. So, you know, are they trying to galvanize patient support? Are they trying to galvanize company support? Is their goal, do you think, to try and get the law amended? What are your thoughts about this? So, yeah, yeah. So they were they were making the statements uh, at ASCO. And I think that what they're trying to do, yeah, is to galvanize support for changing the law. They they came flat out and said, of course, that they think that the law needs to be changed. Alexander Hardy also said some interesting things. He said that it's within CMS's power to implement the law in ways that will mitigate some of these harms. And he said that he's holding and that other uh, companies and stakeholders should hold CMS accountable for doing that, for implementing the law in ways that will reduce the negative consequences for innovation. You know, I think big picture, look, the comments that they made show how the IRA is reshaping drug development. It isn't ending innovation, but it's distorting it in ways that are bad for patients. Novartis and Genentech are still gonna develop their small molecule drugs for lung and prostate cancer. And if they're approved, people who say the concerns over the IRA are exaggerated, We'll be able to point to that and say, well, look, these are successes. People are still developing, companies are still developing drugs, small molecule drugs for cancer. They wouldn't know, unless the CEOs of these companies spoke out, that they could have launched those drugs years earlier for small indications. So what the CEOs are doing is they're saying, look, it's not so simple. It's not a binary, either there's going to be innovation or there isn't going to be innovation. The indications that they're developing and the sequence that they're developing those indications is being affected by the IRA. They're saying that they don't have any choice, that they have to follow the financial consequences. And they're saying that this is something that could be changed. There are things that CMS could do that would make the law less onerous from the standpoint of the, of the companies. And in the long run, um, they're saying they want Congress to change what they call the pill penalty. In other words, the difference uh, between nine years before price negotiations start for small molecules and 13 years um, for large molecules. Steve Wubel, the head of uh, pharma, was at the same press event, and he acknowledged that that simply isn't going to happen in this Congress, uh, but they're building the case for doing it in the future. I think it's really important that they make the timing argument and the CMS implementation. I think the reason is this. Also, the fact that they're saying not scrap the whole thing, you know, as people used to do, let's say with Obama, Obamacare or whatever, but, but let's modify these two parts of it because 
you know, patients and many people will argue you've got all this innovation, but many patients can't access it. So what does it help me if you get a new drug out if I don't get to see it for 15 years? And that is the situation that many patients are in. So I think the timing thing, and I think that drawing the realities of what goes on, not just saying we need innovation because that's that's our fiduciary duty and that's our business and that's what's good for the world, but actually being able to relate that to when patients will be able to access that innovation is important. And the fact that they are that the law skews the drug development by the wrong incentives. So rather than being based on the science, you're being based on it's being based on the way the law is constructed, whether you pursue, for example, a small molecule or a or a biologic, you know, obviously that is the wrong incentive to be behind some of the innovation that is coming to market. So it's going to be interesting to see whether they're able to chip away at at all, uh, you know, on those adverse incentives. One of the other things that's interesting, um, Voss pointed to the success that was announced at ASCO for Kiskali as an adjuvant treatment for metastatic breast cancer, and he pointed out that this is that this data is coming to light seven years after the drug was first approved and launched. And he suggested that if the IRA had been in effect when the drug was launched, it might not have been economically feasible for Novartis to do the trials to demonstrate the benefit of Kisgali as an adjuvant treatment for uh, metastatic breast cancer. Right. And that's something that's really relevant to patients today for a drug that's on the market, um, generating that evidence. And you know, we've said before, and other people will say again, that there's probably not going to be another Keytruda for this reason. Lauren, you took a look at those data. What stood out to you? Yeah, so um, as we saw last week, Kisqually reduced the risk of invasive disease recurrence by 25% in the stage 2 and 3 HER2 positive, or HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer patients. So this is a population that, um, for the most part, is already addressed by another marketed product, Verzenio from, from Eli Lilly. What was different about this, this Kisquali study and why this could potentially impact a, a much broader group of patients is because they included patients who are both node positive and node negative in the study. So patients who have lymph node involvement obviously, you know, often have worse outcomes and maybe in greater need for an adjuvant therapy, but they showed a benefit in patients who have no negative disease where, where this class of drug hasn't been used before. The question is whether or not this would actually get approved for that population. This was a study with like 2,500 patients and 44 were no negative. So it will be interesting to see how FDA handles this data as it's looking to a label expansion. And, and and that might be another example of the negative effects of the of the IRA, which is if FDA comes back and says, "Well, if you want that broader label, you're going to have to do a study demonstrating it." It might be very difficult in this environment uh, for Novartis to um, to justify doing it. And then the question would be, and I think this is a question also for these for all of these indications is if the companies can't do it, but they can. They can't do it. They don't find it financially feasible to do it, but they think that it's something that would benefit patients. Maybe there's a challenge there to say, well, um, does the NCI or does somebody else um, step into the into the breach 
um, and try to develop the data that would uh, lead to the expansion of these indications and get something to patients who really need it. All right. Well, obviously, a, a flood of data out of ASCO over the weekend and into this morning. Lauren, what else stood out to you among everything that, that's been coming across the bow? So I think we have to talk about the antibody drug conjugates that we've seen data on today. One thing that I found interesting was the pan tumor study on in HER2, the HER2 targeted ADC. They saw efficacy across some different solid tumors that were included in the study. Actually, almost all of the solid tumor types um, that expressed HER2, with the exception, unfortunately, of pancreatic cancer. But, um, you know, this looked very encouraging. There was a 64% ORR in ovarian cancer um, and, and some other difficult to treat tumor types. And now these cancers all had a decent level of HER2 expression. So obviously it's a subset of patients that, that are included in this. But this is a therapy that has worked in breast cancers that express low levels of the, of the target, which we saw at last year's ASCO. So it'll be interesting to see how this moves forward in, in diverse cancer types. I spoke with Susan Galbraith about the broad potential of inher 2 She thinks it's due to the linker-warhead combination of, of this product specifically. But HER2 itself is also, um, it may have something to do with HER2 itself, the receptor. You know, there are features involving how it's internalized, how it's recycled, and things like that. So this might not be, the broad effect might not be something that's seen across ADCs, but there may be other targets that have similar effects. And she thinks TROP2 may be another one of those targets. So we've also seen uh, quite a bit of TROP2 ADC data today, including one from Daiichi and AstraZeneca, which was used in first line and previously treated non-small cell lung cancer patients, uh, 38% ORR with Dato DTX plus pembrolizumab. And then it went up to 49% when this was combined with a chemotherapy. And, and even higher higher response rates in the untreated population. Now, those were EGFR mutant negative lung cancer patients. And we also saw data from Kellen and Merck today in a different population, which was um, previously treated non-small cell lung cancer, but it included patients with EGFR mutations who have more therapeutic options. And um, it seemed like the response rates in that study, which were also very positive, may be driven by that mutant population. So it's a little bit difficult to compare these two data sets, but both of them look pretty promising. So, Lauren, that AstraZeneca-Daiichi partnership seems to be a pretty fruitful one um, based on the number of things we're seeing announced and coming through and, and making headway. You've been looking across the cancer space last week. You had a super cool graphic showing checkpoint inhibitors that I'd ask people to look on our website, the growth of these over time. Um, right now, what's super hot is ADCs, of course. Do you think, you know, AstraZeneca has pretty much established itself as a lead player now in oncology? Do you have any comments around that? There's a few other players. I know there's also Tigriso data that is coming through. What, what are your thoughts about what's going on um, at AstraZeneca with oncology? Oh, yeah, I think this was uh, the Daiichi deal was obviously a, a very good decision on AstraZeneca's part. And I think people were looking to this TROP2 data to see if it, if it really is Daiichi's ADC technology that's responsible for the incredible results that we've seen within HER2. And again, it's kind of hard to, to compare the TROP2 data with, with other TROP2 ADCs. So that still sort of remains to be seen. But 
we've published before about why the Daiichi ADCs and specifically in HER2 are so successful. It's just, you know, different aspects of the design of the molecules. AstraZeneca also has a big history of building on its successful oncology drugs. So this morning, Susan spoke with me about what else they're doing in ADC. So AstraZeneca is not limited to this Daiichi deal. They actually have three early stage ADCs that were developed in-house with you know lessons learned from, from the deal with Daiichi. They've done some other in-licensing deals, um, including some with China Biotechs for ADCs. So that's just one example. And I think Paul might get into the Tegriso data. This is, you know, their most successful cancer product at the moment. And what they've done with this drug is sort of taken some big at-risk development decisions. They've gone into the adjuvant setting before they even had first-line data, um, you know, hoping that that would work. They've developed this very quickly, and it's differentiated from some of the other EGFR mutant inhibitors on the market. So. Moving earlier into lines of treatment very quickly, I think, has had an impact on the success that AstraZeneca has had in cancer, too. And Susan Galbraith, of course, EVP of Oncology R&D at AstraZeneca. Paul, I know you've been tucking into the Tegriso data this morning. Uh, Quickly, before we uh, move on, uh, what did you see there? And just to be clear, that is a targeted therapy for patients with EGFR mutations, as you mentioned before, and this is a a population after resection. They came out with some really just outstanding overall survival data yesterday, showing that the risk of death in this population was cut in half, uh, 51% to be specific. Um, And they also said that 88% of patients in the overall study population were still alive at five years. And... Just quickly, before we uh, move on to Paul's story on this uh, new-ish company, Alcaeus, Lauren, uh, got to talk about BCMA. Uh, what what did you see there? There were a few exciting pieces of data today that suggest there may be new BCMA modalities to follow the very effective autologous CAR-Ts. We had some data from the Novartis T-Charge platform, which is its rapid manufacturing platform, which is still an autologous therapy, but it addresses some of the the big challenges and delays that um, the current manufacturing system have. So at a higher dose tested, they've gotten 100% ORR and a 42% complete response rate in the multiple myeloma patients, which is at least as good as what you'd get with a standard manufacturing platform. And um, we've, we've written about why these rapid systems may lead to higher efficacy. So, so far, that's what we're seeing. And then Johnson Johnson also had a study that combined two of its bispecific antibodies, two cell engaging bispecifics for multiple myeloma. One is telquetamab, it's BCMA CD3 bispecific, and another is the GPRC5D bispecific, um, which also targets CD3 that it's developing. And There at the recommended phase three dose, they had a 96% ORR for patients with a median of four prior lines, which is in line with what you're getting with autologous CAR-Ts as well. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. Uh, You'll be able to catch all of our ASCO coverage at biocentury.com. And this morning, we have news of a $150 million Series B round for a company called Alcaeus Pharmaceuticals. 
It's been fairly quiet over a pretty long history while working on an ophthalmology program. Paul, you spoke with the principals. What did you learn? Well, yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I did speak with the CEO, that's Leonid Saad, and the new executive chairman, uh, Joshua Boger. He's actually rejoining as executive chairman for the second time. As you said at the top, Boger's the founder of Vertex. He was CEO for many years until 2009. I've found Alkeus to be a remarkable company. Yes, they have been really quiet for a lot of their history. They were founded in 2010. They've got a therapy for Stargardt disease that has a really interesting mechanism, which I'll get to shortly. But one of the reasons they've been so quiet is for most of the first decade that this company was in existence, there was one employee, and that was the CEO, Leonid Saad. Boger, the Vertex founder, was executive chairman from 2012 to 2016, and uh you know, the way he told it, there wasn't much for him to do because Leonid Saad was doing everything. He was coordinating with vendors, talking to regulators, writing protocols, and getting trials going. So what is Alkeus doing? Well, it has one asset that has already generated data, clinical data in Stargardt disease that the company believes is registrational. So they're planning an NDA submission next year. The molecule is a deuterated form of vitamin A, which means that there's a replacement of a normal hydrogen isotope with deuterium, a heavier isotope. Um, compared with normal vitamin A. So basically, in Stargardt patients, Stargardt is like an early onset form of macular degeneration. It's not age-related. Um, and, and there's a mutation in the ABCA4 gene that results in vitamin A producing toxic dimers that accumulate in the RPE, and that leads to vision loss. So the deuterated form generates uh, what they say is dramatically fewer dimers, and it's therefore designed to preserve vision. There's progressive vision loss in patients, so it preserves vision, spares the, spares the loss. And so far, the, the clinical data suggests that it does that. They've got phase two data showing slower growth of atrophic lesions in people with advanced Stargardt. And they believe uh, at that company, at Alkeus, that FDA is okay with just one trial to gain initial approval. So Boger has seen a lot in many years in biotech, and he was very enthusiastic about the program. He pointed out, you know, it affects a chemical reaction in the eye rather than a biological target. The fact that it's so similar to vitamin A means that apart from affecting that reaction, the body doesn't recognize it as different from vitamin A, so the safety profile is very clean. And there are no drugs for Stargardt, so Alkeus has a shot at being first to market. And all this, again, is coming from a company that had raised $2.3 million in equity capital since 2010 and had only one employee for most of that time. It's pretty astonishing, right? And so Boger is back on board as executive chairman again, and he says now with that, you know, that data readout in hand, it's time to build a business around the CEO and the asset. Finally, they still have a single-digit number of employees. Um, they're hoping to have fifty by the time they submit next year. And you know, as he put it to me, you can't file an NDA and launch a drug with just one person. So it's time to really construct the business. And he's done that, you know, long ago at Vertex, and you know, we've all seen where they've gone. Right. And that little bit I teased at the top, I just thought was a great quote from Boger, where he says, you know, if this works in the clinic, this could be the most perfect drug ever discovered. Great, great stuff there, obviously. Uh, one thing that you said, Paul, uh, that I wanted to ask you about is you said initial approval. It's a single asset company. Where else could they go with this? Yeah, that, that's another thing that Boger was excited about. So Alkeus has more trials going in various stages of Stargardt disease. The one readout they have is in the most advanced patients, but now there's an intermediate patient study that is ongoing with 80 patients. 
And there's also a phase three due to read out in a broader indication, which is geographic atrophy associated with AMD. And you probably know, many of our listeners know, Apellus has a recently approved drug for GA, and Iveric has a competing product under review. And Iveric is being acquired by Astellas for $5.9 billion. Um, so that's an indication that has driven a great deal of interest. It's much bigger than Stargardt with millions of patients. And Alkeus has a bead on competing there too. It's it's a pipeline and a product company. And, you know, it wasn't really well known, but it has a great deal of potential. Um, you know, it's funny, they weren't in stealth, but they didn't talk a lot, um, haven't generated too much press. So um, I hope our readers will want to read about that company's story. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I can't recall too many companies like that. I mean, they've been around now. We, we kind of debated, can we do an emerging company profile on this company that's 13 years old? Uh, but wow, uh, speak to uh, efficiently developing a drug and uh, very cool that it has Joshua Boger's uh, attention and yeah. now his, uh, once again, his his leadership. Extraordinary capital efficiency was, the, I believe, how he put it. And really just one person shouldering a, a ton of the load, uh, wearing many hats. So we'll see where this takes them. But um, we obviously will be anticipating more news from them in the next year or so. Great. Well, it was a great read, Paul. Thanks for laying that out for us. And Lauren, Steve, Simone, um, great as always to have you on and tuck into the deluge of data that is ASCO, the gift of ASCO every year. We will catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>